This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're beginning a new series titled Infamous Locales. There are some places in the world that get a reputation as trouble spots after multiple tragedies or crimes occur there. In this series, I'd like to take you to a few of those locations to detail some of the reasons they're considered infamous. First up, we'll go to Southern California and visit Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills is known for its celebrity mansions, ritzy shopping districts, trendy restaurants, and five-star hotels. But there's one small section of the city that, for whatever reason, has been a magnet for tragic accidents and bloody crimes. Is it a coincidence or a curse? I'll let you be the judge. This is Chapter 1 of Infamous Locales, the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle. Beverly Hills, California, in 1946, was already a wealthy enclave. Pricey Spanish-style mansions were surrounded by palm trees, with the rich and beautiful residing within them. One intersection, the corner of North Whittier and North Linden Drive, is not a corner at all, but the tip of a triangle. The two streets intersect at the point where Whittier Drive continues south and veers towards the right, and North Linden begins its descent through Beverly Hills. Running alongside Whittier Drive, just a block or two to the west, sits the Los Angeles Country Club. The Country Club, which has been in existence since 1897, has been at its current location since 1911. It offers tennis courts and 36 holes of golf to its members, as well as fine dining. July 7, 1946, was a beautiful, clear, and warm Southern California day. Howard Hughes thought it was the perfect day to fly. It would be the first flight for the prototype of his XF-11 aircraft. The U.S. Army Air Force had commissioned his company, Hughes Aircraft, to build it as a reconnaissance aircraft. Hughes, an experienced pilot, was to perform the test flight himself. Hughes was a multimillionaire real estate mogul, entrepreneur, and filmmaker. He was also a take-charge kind of guy who'd had some big successes as well as some spectacular failures in his life. Howard Robard Hughes Jr. was born in Texas in 1905 to Aline and Howard Sr. His father was a successful inventor and entrepreneur who'd made his fortune by inventing and then leasing an oil drilling tool bit to petroleum companies. His son Howard Jr. took after his father in his engineering aptitude and his business acumen. He built the first wireless radio transmitter in his city of Houston, Texas, when he was only 11 years old. Howard was smart and independent, two qualities that he would need after losing both his mother and father while he was still in his teens. His mother died as a result of complications from a pregnancy, and his father died just two years later of a heart attack. Howard inherited the bulk of his parents' estate and became a wealthy man at age 20. He married Ella Botts Rice in 1925, and they moved to Los Angeles, where Howard planned to start a career in filmmaking. By 1931, he had made three financially successful films that were also critically acclaimed. His passion project was a war film titled Hell's Angels that was released in 1930. 
It was extremely costly to produce, its budget coming in at just under $4 million. Halfway through production, the entire film had to be retooled to include sound. It had originally been shot as a silent film, but with the advent of sound in motion pictures, the original version had to be scrapped. They also recast the film's leading lady. The Norwegian silent film star Greta Nissen was replaced with the newly discovered Jean Harlow. Hell's Angels told the story of two World War I fighter pilots who both loved the same woman, played by Jean Harlow. The aerial dogfighting stunts in the film were choreographed by pilot Harry Perry and Hughes himself. Hughes had always had an interest in aviation, and once in Los Angeles, began taking flying lessons from the top aviators of the day. He would go on to set aviation land speed records with custom aircraft he'd had built for himself. The lead stunt pilot on the movie, Paul Mentz, worked with a team of experienced World War I pilots hired for the film. Hughes called for increasingly dangerous stunts, which Mentz rejected as being too dangerous. Hughes then decided to perform the final stunt himself, and as he'd been warned, was unable to pull out of a steep dive. He crashed and was seriously injured with a skull fracture. Others were not as lucky as Hughes. Three pilots and one mechanic were all killed during the filming of the aerial stunts on Hell's Angels. In 1943, Hughes flew his Sikorsky S-43 amphibian aircraft from Las Vegas to Lake Mead to conduct qualifying test flights. The plane experienced mechanical issues and crashed into Lake Mead. CAA aviation inspector Chico Klein and Hughes aircraft employee Richard Felt were both killed. Hughes survived his second plane crash, receiving another serious injury to his head. It cost over $100,000 to recover the plane from the lake and a half a million more to repair it. But Hughes was never one to quit and apparently didn't scare away easily. So on July 7, 1946, he found himself in the cockpit of the Hughes XF-11 over Los Angeles. It was the first flight of the prototype aircraft. Hughes took off from the airfield of Hughes Aircraft, located in Culver City, California. Within minutes, an oil leak caused one of the rotating propellers to reverse pitch, and the aircraft began to quickly lose altitude. It was coming in low over Beverly Hills, right smack in the center of the area that would come to be known as the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle. Hughes, knowing the plane was going to crash land, aimed for the Los Angeles Country Club, trying to miss homes and streets and land on the golf course. Actor Dennis O'Keefe, who lived at 802 North Linden Drive, saw the plane's descent from his yard and witnessed the crash unfold. The twin-engine aircraft was huge, and the sound of the powerful engine so close overhead was what first alerted him to it. The XF-11 first clipped a two-story home located at 803 North Linden Drive, owned by a dentist, Dr. Jules Zimmer. Half of his roof was torn off by the underside of the aircraft. At the same time, its right wing sliced through the wall of an upstairs bedroom at 805 North Linden Drive. The owners, Jerry and Elizabeth DeCamp, narrowly escaped with their lives. The out-of-control aircraft then sliced through a row of trees before crashing through the rear of 808 Whittier Drive. One of the plane's engines was torn away and hurtled through the home of Lieutenant Colonel Charles Meyer, clipping the corner of Gosta B. Gustin's home at 810 Whittier Drive and landing on the lawn. 
Hughes managed to pull himself from the plane that had burst into flames when it hit the Meyer home. He was pulled to safety by Captain James Gustin, Mr. Gustin's son, and another man, Marine Sergeant William Lloyd Durkin, who were the first ones to arrive on the scene. He was rushed to the Beverly Hills Emergency Hospital and was given a 50-50 chance to live. He had a crushed collarbone, multiple cracked ribs, a crushed chest, and a collapsed left lung, which caused his heart to shift to the right side of his chest cavity. He'd also received third-degree burns all over his body. He survived, but it's believed that the trauma he suffered in the XF-11 crash, as well as the series head injuries he sustained from the other two plane crashes he'd experienced, contributed to his odd behavior as he aged. His businesses and investments flourished, and by the time of his death in 1976, at the age of 70, his estate was worth approximately $2.5 billion. However, soon after the crash in 1946, he began to suffer from increasingly debilitating mental illnesses, including severe obsessive-compulsive disorder. In 1958, he told his staff that he wanted to screen some movies at a film studio near his home. He did not emerge from the dark screening room for four months, eating only chocolate bars and chicken and drinking only milk. When he finally emerged, he'd not bathed or cut his nails for months. He began moving from hotel to hotel, staying inside his room for weeks or months at a time. He racked up huge bills and spent most of his time nude. He became obsessed with certain things and, for example, would watch the same movie continuously or eat only one type of food for weeks. He also became obsessed with germs. The smallest bit of dirt or dust would send him into an anxious fit, and he'd demand things be cleaned completely or removed. He began isolating himself more and more. Because of the pain he still suffered from his near-fatal plane crash, he became addicted to codeine and would inject it intravenously. He lived as a recluse for several years at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, which he subsequently purchased. In the last years of his life, he moved to Nicaragua and lived at the Intercontinental Hotel. A 6.5-magnitude earthquake hit Managua in December 1972, after which Hughes moved into a large tent near the hotel. He later moved to the penthouse at the Xanadu Princess Resort on Grand Bahama Island, which he had purchased. He lived there for four years, until he died in 1976. Ironically, he is believed to have passed away while on board an aircraft, en route from either the Bahamas or Mexico, to receive treatment at a hospital in Texas. An autopsy revealed that Hughes weighed only 90 pounds at the time of his death, although he was 6 foot 4 inches tall. His hair, beard, and nails were very long and didn't appear to have been cut in perhaps years. Kidney failure was determined to be the cause of his death, he was malnourished and his kidneys were damaged. His brain was reported to be undamaged. X-rays showed that five hypodermic needles had broken off and were lodged in the flesh of his arms. The long, slow, steady decline of Howard Hughes, after his incredible plane crash, may be the first strange tragedy attributed to the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle, but it wouldn't be the last. It was a calm and quiet June night in 1947. 41-year-old Benjamin Siegel was sitting on a chintz sofa in the living room of his girlfriend, Virginia Hill's home. Virginia was an actress 
and her 7,000-square-foot Moorish-style mansion was located at 810 North Linden Drive, just feet away from the V that began the intersection of Linden and Whittier, the tip of the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle. Ben and Virginia had just returned from having dinner at one of their favorite seafood restaurants, Jack's on the Beach. Ben had trout. He had no idea it would be his last meal. Although he might have seen it coming, or more likely, he may have anticipated his life to end unexpectedly most of his life. You see, Benjamin Siegel, or Bugsy, as he was more often called, although it was a nickname he hated, was one of the most powerful and connected mobsters in the United States, number two only to Meyer Lansky, an East Coast boss. Siegel had been the main hitman for the mob syndicate Murder, Inc. when he was barely out of his teens. Bugsy ran with a rough crowd and wielded a lot of power in the criminal world. But lately, he'd made several dangerous and powerful enemies. Tonight, the chickens would come home to roost, as they say, and Siegel, enjoying a quiet evening reading the paper, would be quickly dispatched when four bullets slammed into his head and body. He was most likely dead before his head slumped against the back of the couch. Who killed Bugsy Siegel, and why, would take much longer to unravel. Benjamin Siegel was born in New York City in 1906. His parents were Jews who had immigrated from Austria just a few years before his birth. Ben was a wild child. His behavior was impulsive, and his parents had a hard time controlling him. As a matter of fact, it was his behavior that caused people to remark that he was as crazy as a bedbug, which led to the hated nickname Bugsy. Like most immigrants in New York at the turn of the century, Bugsy grew up poor in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He began working at the age of 11 to help support his family. He quit school while only in the third or fourth grade, but he was smart and could always get work. However, Bugsy knew early on that he was destined for more. He was determined to rise above his life of poverty. He began running with a gang of boys, mostly committing thefts for pocket money. Then he met Mo Sedway, and together they started an extortion racket. They would threaten Jewish pushcart peddlers, forcing them to pay them a dollar, or they would steal or destroy their merchandise. One day in 1918, Bugsy got into a fight with another street tough named Meyer Lansky. Once they'd sufficiently beaten the crap out of one another and earned each other's respect, they became fast friends. Together, they soon formed their own gang. Lansky had decided that Jewish boys like them should team up to protect themselves against rivals, just like the Irish and Italian gangsters did. He recruited Bugsy as his number two in charge. Both Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel were shrewd and ruthless. They expanded their operation beyond theft and extortion to include gambling rackets, and when Prohibition began in 1920, the lucrative field of bootlegging. Prohibition helped to usher in one of the most violent periods in organized crime, with rival mobs killing each other for control over territory. Lansky and Siegel had ties to Lucky Luciano, one of the future bosses of the Genovese crime family. In 1920, Luciano hired four hitmen from the Lansky-Siegel gang, one of them allegedly being Bugsy Siegel himself, to murder rival Salvatore Maranzano. Lansky and Siegel then went on to establish Murder, Inc., 
a syndicate of contract killers who carried out hits for Italian and Jewish mafias. Siegel worked as the lead hitman for Murder, Inc. Siegel made dangerous enemies in New York, and it became too dangerous for him to stay, so he moved with his family to California in 1937. By this time, he'd been married to his wife, Esta, for almost a decade and had two daughters. The gang also thought Siegel should expand their operations to the West Coast. While in California, Siegel oversaw gambling, prostitution, narcotics, and bookmaking operations. One byproduct of his California move was that Bugsy Siegel became seduced by the glamour and glitz of Hollywood. He enjoyed running in celebrity circles and became part of the glitterati. His friends included Hollywood A-listers like Cary Grant, Clark Gable, and Gary Cooper. Jean Harlow became godmother to his daughter Millicent. Siegel started dating starlets and carried on numerous affairs. His wife, having had enough of his philandering, divorced him in 1946. A member of the Lansky-Siegel gang, Harry Greenberg, got jammed up by the LAPD and agreed to turn informant. Lansky found out and ordered a hit on him. Siegel, along with Whitey Karkauer, Frankie Carbo, and Albert Tannenbaum, killed him outside of his apartment on November 22, 1939. Later, Tannenbaum confessed to the murder and agreed to testify against Siegel. Siegel was arrested and sent to jail to await his trial. Even his incarceration made big news. He was given preferential treatment while incarcerated due to his money and connections. He didn't like prison food, so he was allowed to have his own chef come in and prepare his meals. He had unlimited phone privileges and was allowed to have women in his cell. He was even allowed outside of prison 19 times for dentist appointments when he was, in fact, going out to lunch with a young actress he was courting. Two of the state's witnesses against Bugsy Siegel were killed and no new witnesses came forward. Gee, I wonder why. Tannenbaum's testimony was deemed unreliable and charges were dropped due to insufficient evidence and Siegel was released. After his release from jail, Bugsy Siegel wanted to go legit, or at least what he considered legit, and moved to Las Vegas. He partnered with William Wilkerson in the building of the Flamingo Hotel. Before long, true to form, Siegel decided he wanted full control of the Flamingo. He wanted to bring gambling, good liquor, and food, as well as big entertainers, to the desert city. Something that would attract not just high rollers, but people from all walks of life. He lured them in with inexpensive meals and entertainment, while they turned over their cash to his establishment at the card tables and roulette wheels. This model is credited with developing the Las Vegas Strip into what it is today. Wilkerson, his one-time partner, was coerced into selling all of his stakes in the Flamingo to Siegel under the threat of death. He fled to France. The Flamingo was then taken over by Lansky's mob syndicate. Siegel moved his actor's girlfriend, Virginia Hill, to Las Vegas and began spending money like a drunken sailor, as my father would say. He needed more money to continue building the Flamingo. He wanted the very best of everything. This was in 1945 and 1946, the time of post-war shortages. As a result, construction costs soared. To put more money in the coffers to complete the hotel, Siegel reached out to investors, mostly Eastern crime syndicate bosses, who he guaranteed a big return on their investments. 
Instead, his $1 million project wound up costing over $6 million. The investors, including Meyer Lansky, were not happy, and these men became dangerous when they were unhappy. They also suspected Siegel of skimming off the top to finance his Hollywood lifestyle, which was most likely true. Ever cocky, he responded to the mob boss's inquiries about their money by telling them that he would return the loans in, quote, his own good time. The Flamingo finally opened in December 1946. Siegel had counted on his Hollywood friends to turn out in droves to draw people to his new casino. However, only a handful showed up. The weather was bad, and the hotel wasn't even finished. Parts of it were still under construction. Most critically, the luxury rooms weren't ready for guests. Two weeks into the opening of the Flamingo, it was already $275,000 in debt. It was shut down a month later. Siegel rededicated himself to finishing the project and reopening the Flamingo. It reopened on March 1, 1947. Lansky was on hand for the grand reopening. Fortunately, profits began to roll in. However, these late profits could not erase the bad feelings that the top mob bosses already had for Siegel. They still believed he'd stolen from them and had shown them grave disrespect by making them wait for their money. Three months later, on June 20, 1947, Siegel was enjoying spending time in Los Angeles at his girlfriend's house. At just before 11 p.m., nine bullets blasted into the living room window where he was sitting on the couch reading the Los Angeles Times. Later, it was determined that they'd been fired from outside by a 30 caliber military-style rifle. Four slugs entered his body, two hitting him in the head, one entering his right cheek and exiting through the left side of his neck. The other struck the bridge of his nose and passed through his skull. The pressure blew his left eye out of the socket. He was killed instantly. His body slumped on the couch, still sitting in his gray suit, tie, and patent leather shoes that he'd not yet even untied. Right away, rumors flew as to who was responsible for the hit. The shooter knew exactly where he was and had a clear shot of him from the street through the large living room window. The drapes were still open, although it was late at night. There was talk that it was a setup. The Beverly Hills police chief in charge of the investigation was convinced that his East Coast mob cronies had him killed. Lucky Luciano, exiled in Cuba at the time, was rumored to have called a meeting with Lansky and the others on the board of directors of the crime syndicate and ordered the hit. It was said to be in retaliation for the money Siegel had not yet repaid. Some reports state that he owed Luciano alone $3 million. While investigators decided that this was most likely the case, they did not know who the trigger man was, and so the murder of Bugsy Siegel technically remained unsolved. Then in 1987, there was a deathbed confession that provided another possible answer as to who killed Bugsy Siegel. A retired mobster named Eddie Canazaro told the Herald Examiner and two federal agents that he had killed Bugsy Siegel. He said he'd worked for Jack Dragna, the crime syndicate's head of its gambling operations in California. Bugsy Siegel and Jack Dragna had worked together in Murder, Inc. They had become rivals in California for the control over the lucrative West Coast racing wire service. Canazaro said that Dragna had ordered him to take out Siegel. Investigators determined that Canazaro had indeed been connected to Dragna and the crime syndicate, 
but could never confirm that he'd been the actual shooter. Fast forward 27 years later, when the son of another man revealed a family secret he said held the key to the murder. Robbie Sedway, son of Mo Sedway, decided to go on the record shortly before his own death from throat cancer. In 2014, he gave an interview to Los Angeles Magazine in what is perhaps the most bizarre story to date to explain the murder of Bugsy Siegel, although many believe it does have merit. Mo Sedway, if you'll recall, was the boy who Bugsy first started out with in a life of crime by extorting pushcart peddlers in their Brooklyn neighborhood. Mo and Bugsy had been best friends and had remained friends when Lansky sent them both to California to oversee mob operations. However, when Lansky became angry with Siegel's spendthrift ways, he enlisted Sedway to oversee Siegel's finances. Sedway had control of the money that Siegel was used to having at his disposal and that he needed for his Flamingo Hotel project. Siegel had allegedly made the comment that he would, quote, have Mo shot, chop up his body, and feed it to the Flamingo Hotel's garbage disposal, unquote. Mo Sedway's wife, B heard about this threat against her husband. At the time, she was having an open affair with a truck driver named Matthew Moose Panza. B told her husband that her lover could protect him from Siegel. I told you it was bizarre. Moose Panza became Sedway's unofficial bodyguard, and the two became close friends, even though they were both in love with B, who was married to Mo, but sleeping with Moose. Got that straight? Sedway finally agreed that Siegel was dangerous and had to be eliminated. Moose was happy to help. He was an avid hunter and a good marksman. He was able to obtain a 30 caliber military M1 carbine from a buddy who'd been in the army. He began practicing with the rifle, shooting targets in the desert. He knew he had only one chance to take out Siegel. Several weeks later, on the evening of June 20, 1947, Moose Panza approached Virginia Hill's house and walked up the driveway. He could see Siegel through the window. He aimed and quickly fired off nine rounds, four of which hit Siegel. Siegel had been killed, not by a mobster hitman, according to Robbie Sedway, but by the lover of his mother on orders from his father. Robbie was told the story by his mother before her own death. It's a love story, Robbie Sedway told Los Angeles Magazine. Moose Panza killed Bugsy Siegel because he loved B, and B, in turn, loved her husband, Mo Sedway, and didn't want him murdered by his old friend, who was crazy as a bedbug. A strange tale? Perhaps. And perhaps it's the true story of the death of Bugsy Siegel. But as of this writing, the case is still unsolved. William Jan Berry and Dean Ormsby Torrance grew up in Los Angeles, California, and met while they were attending junior high in Westwood. They were football teammates who both enjoyed music. They began harmonizing together in the locker room after games. Another player on their team who sometimes joined in was James Brolin, who would go on to become a Hollywood actor and to marry Barbara Streisand. In another strange coincidence, Jan Berry's father was an aeronautical engineer who had worked for Howard Hughes as a project manager on the H-4 Hercules strategic airlift flying boat, 
known as the Spruce Goose. It was a prototype, and William L. Berry accompanied Howard Hughes on its only flight in 1947. Jan Berry and Dean Torrance began a doo-wop singing group to enter a high school talent competition. The group practiced in Berry's garage, and Berry began arranging songs and experimenting with vocal arrangements. After the contest, the other members of the group quit, and it became a duo, with only Berry and his friend Dean Torrance continuing. In 1958, another friend, Arnie Ginsberg, brought a song to Berry and Torrance, and they decided to record it. However, Torrance was conscripted into the Army Reserve and was sent off to Fort Ord. Ginsberg and Torrance then recorded the song Jenny Lee under the name Jan and Arnie. An A&R Records executive heard the song and offered to release it through his label. The pop song became a hit, and in 1958, the duo appeared on The Dick Clark Show. Jenny Lee reached number eight on the Billboard charts. Jan and Arnie recorded several more songs and toured with other pop groups and singers like Bobby Darin and The Blossoms. They began to create what would later become their signature surf music sound. By late 1959, Dean Torrance completed his six-month stint in the Army Reserves. At the same time, Arnie Ginsberg decided he didn't want to continue in the music game. He was set to begin classes in the School of Architecture and Design at the University of Southern California. He would later move to Santa Barbara, where he would work as an architectural designer and was the designer of the iconic Ginsberg House. In the meantime, Dean Torrance stepped in to fill his spot, and he and Barry began recording as Jan and Dean. However, both of them also enrolled in college while they continued to make music. Dean attended USC, majoring in advertising design, while Jan was a music major at UCLA. After graduating from UCLA, Jan began medical school at what is now the UC Irvine School of Medicine. In 1959, Jan and Dean scored their first top 10 hit with the song Baby Talk. Barry was co-writing, producing, and arranging all of Jan and Dean's music by this time. They met the Beach Boys while playing local clubs, and both groups became known for surf music. Jan wrote, arranged, and produced songs for many other pop and rock groups during this time. Jan began collaborating on music with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, including Surf City, written by Barry and Wilson. In 1964, Jan and Dean were featured in the historic concert film The Tammy Show, alongside such featured acts as the Rolling Stones, Chuck Berry, Marvin Gaye, James Brown, the Supremes, and the Beach Boys. Between 1963 and 1966, Jan and Dean had 16 top 40 hits on the Billboard and Cashbox magazine charts. Drag City reached number 10 in 1964. The Little Old Lady from Pasadena reached number 3 in 1964. And Dead Man's Curved reached number 8 in the same year. The song Dead Man's Curve tells the story of a drag race gone wrong in an area known as Dead Man's Curve in the Beverly Hills section of Los Angeles. Here are the words to the song written by Artie Kornfeld, Brian Wilson, Jan Barry, and Roger Val Christian. I was cruising in my Stingray late one night when an XKE pulled up on the right. He rolled down the window of his shiny new Jag and challenged me then and there to a drag. I said, you're on, buddy. My mill's running fine. Let's come off the line now at Sunset and Vine. But I'll go you one better if you've got the nerve. Let's race all the way to Dead Man's Curve. Is no place to play. 
Dead man's curve, you'd best keep away. Dead man's curve, I can hear him say, won't come back from dead man's curve. The street was deserted late Friday night. We were bugging each other while we sat out the light. We both popped the clutch when the light turned green. You should have heard the whine from my screaming machine. I flew past La Brea, Schwab's, and Crescent Heights, and all the jag could see were my six taillights. He passed me at Doheny when I started to swerve, but I pulled her out, and there we were, at Dead Man's Curve. Is no place to play. Dead Man's Curve. Well, the last thing I remember, Doc, I started to swerve, and then I saw the jag slide into the curve. I know I'll never forget that horrible sight. I guess I found out for myself that everyone was right. Won't come back from Dead Man's Curve is no place to play. Dead Man's Curve, you'd best keep away. Dead Man's Curve, I can hear them say, won't come back from Dead Man's Curve. On April 12, 1966, Jan Berry was driving his Corvette, not at Dead Man's Curve, although it wasn't far away, but on Whittier Drive. He was just passing the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle, driving towards Sunset Boulevard, when for some unknown reason, he swerved and drove into a parked car. Maybe the sun was in his eyes and he didn't see the car. Perhaps, some speculate, he was preoccupied. He'd just broken up with his girlfriend of seven years, singer Jill Gibson. Some find the similarities to his song, Dead Man's Curve, eerie. He was driving in a Corvette. The words of the song have him cruising in a Stingray, a Corvette model. He mentioned some well-known Los Angeles markers, Schwab's Drugstore, La Brea, and Sunset Boulevard, the road he was coming up on right before the crash. And of course, the closing refrain, won't come back from Dead Man's Curve, all seemed somehow tragically prophetic. Jan Berry was seriously injured in the crash and sustained massive head injuries. He remained in a coma for more than two months. But Berry did come back from Dead Man's Curve, awakening from his coma on the morning of June 16, 1966. The brain damage he sustained would leave lasting effects. He suffered from partial paralysis and had minimal use of his right arm and hand. He adapted, learning to use his left hand. The challenges he faced to recover were great, and doctors said he most likely would never walk again, but Barry refused to give up. Just one year after the accident, in June 1967, Jan Barry returned to the studio and began writing and producing music once again. In 1971, Jan and Dean released an anthology album under the United Artists label. Their first live performance together since the accident took place at the Palomino Club in North Hollywood in 1976. Jan had trouble with speech, as well as being weak on his right side. While he always had physical challenges, his mind remained sharp. He continued to test in the genius IQ range. He still produced music, writing and arranging new compositions. He and Dean also toured. Jan would mostly sing backup for Dean, but the fans appreciated his effort to perform for them. Jan Berry died after suffering a seizure at his home in Los Angeles on March 26, 2004. He was 62. He and Dean had just performed together three weeks earlier, singing their 1960 surf rock hits for a crowd in El Cajon, California. Jan and Dean remained best friends until his last days.
It was a clear and cool night in Los Angeles on November 15, 2010. It was a Monday night, but the party never stops in L.A., and this night was no exception. The star-studded premiere of the movie Burlesque, starring Christina Aguilera and Cher, was held that night in Hollywood at the famed Grauman's Chinese Theater. Stars and Hollywood industry players were out to see and be seen on the red carpet. Also attending the premiere that night was 64-year-old Veronica Ronnie Chasen. Chasen had tried her hand at acting when she'd first arrived in Los Angeles. Born Veronica Cohen, Chasen grew up in a Jewish family in the Bronx before making her way to California. She acted in a few soap operas, but found that her true calling was that of a publicist. She was briefly married in her 20s, but it didn't take. She'd never had children, so she was able to dedicate herself full-time to her career. Chasen's reputation grew, and she began representing high-profile clients like actor Michael Douglas and musician Hans Zimmer. One of her youngest clients, who went on to great success, was John Travolta. She coached him from his television role playing sweat hog Vinnie Barbarino on Welcome Back, Cotter, to teaching him how to present himself as a film actor and leading man as he began to break out into movies. But Chasen was best known for leading successful Oscar campaigns. She worked on campaigns for over 100 movies, including On Golden Pawn, which earned 10 nominations and won three Oscars, Driving Miss Daisy with nine nominations and four Oscars, and Rocky with 10 nominations and three Oscars. She headed publicity for American International Pictures before taking a position as Executive Vice President of Motion Pictures at the Rogers and Cohen Agency. In 1993, she was named Senior Vice President of Publicity for MGM Studios. At the same time, she was the owner of Chasen & Company, a public relations firm that represented musicians who composed music for films. Ronnie Chasen was a familiar face around Los Angeles, often seen doing lunch at Beverly Hills hotspots and attending parties and premieres. Those who knew her said she was fun-loving and funny and enjoyed having a good time, but she was also a perfectionist and a workaholic. She did double duty at events by socializing as well as networking. The night of November 15th was no different. She attended the burlesque premiere and then hit the after-party that was held at the W Hotel in Hollywood. She represented several people who worked on burlesque, including producer Donald DeLine, lighting designer Peggy Eisenhower, and Diane Warren, who wrote the song You Haven't Seen the Last of Me, performed by Cher in the movie. Chasen stayed at the party until about midnight, and the other guests remember that she had a good time, laughing and chatting. Her car, a new black Mercedes-Benz E350, was brought up by the valet. Ronnie drove away from the W Hotel at midnight, turning right onto Argyle Avenue and traveling two blocks to Sunset Boulevard. After turning onto Sunset, she would travel west for about eight miles to reach her condominium, located at 10551 Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, about a 30-minute drive. On her way, Ronnie was still working. She placed a call to her office while driving. She left a to-do list for the employees in her office to complete the next day. Being a Monday night and after midnight, traffic was light down Sunset Boulevard. When she passed the Sunset Strip, traffic would be even lighter. There would most likely be very few cars on the road traveling west into Beverly Hills. She'd traveled about six miles towards her destination before she entered the left-hand turn lane 
to continue south on Whittier Boulevard. This would take her alongside the Los Angeles Country Club, which she would cross through by following Whittier West into Beverly Hills. But as she was in the left turn lane preparing to turn onto Whittier, something happened. What exactly that was would be a matter of some debate. The official story would be that as she was waiting at the red light before turning left, someone approached her passenger side window. A park was located on the corner of Sunset and Whittier, and investigators would say that a man came out of the darkness, possibly hidden by the trees, and up to Chasen's car, pointing a gun at her through the passenger side window. The shooter fired off four rounds. One hit Chasen in the back, on her right side, and passed through her, striking her right bicep. Another hit her in the top of her shoulder and ricocheted into her chest. Another hit her in the right side by the breastbone and pierced both breasts as it exited the left side of her body. A fourth shot entered into the top of her shoulder and through her chest, injuring her heart. Chasen's car then turned left onto Whittier. It continued about one quarter mile down the road and crashed into a concrete light pole located in front of 815 North Whittier, the third home located to the left of the intersection of Whittier and North Linden, the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle. Nearby residents heard gunshots, but the first calls to 911 came in about a car that had crashed into a light pole. Those who responded first guessed that the crash was the result of a drunken driver or a tire blowout. The fire department responded within minutes, arriving around 12.30 a.m. They found Ronnie Chasen slumped in the driver's seat, blood coming from her mouth and chest. Her passenger door window was shattered. The airbags had deployed as a result of the impact with the pole. There were no other cars or anyone else in the vicinity. She was rushed to Cedar sinai Medical Center, where they attempted to save her, but it was too late. Ronnie Chasen was pronounced dead at 1.12 a.m. At first, police reported that Chasen's car had been fired upon by another vehicle that had pulled up beside her and shot into the passenger window. Later, that story would change. The Beverly Hills section of Los Angeles has a very low homicide rate, and some believe this may have contributed to mistakes made in the investigation into Chasen's murder. Among some things that investigators were later criticized for were that they did not dust for fingerprints on the right side of the car aside from where the shots were fired. Also, while there are many security cameras in Beverly Hills, including on virtually all of the houses on the block surrounding the shooting, only a few of the residents were interviewed by police, and only some of the security footage was pulled for the investigation. Of course, everyone who heard about the shocking murder of Ronnie Chasen came up with their own theories as to what may have happened. There was talk of a jilted lover, gambling debts owed by a family member that got Ronnie killed, or an art deal between Chasen and the Russian mob that had gone wrong. None of these rumors panned out. There was another theory that was floated when it was discovered that Chasen's will left the bulk of her $6 million estate to one of the two daughters of her brother, Larry Cohen. Ronnie had two nieces, Jill and Melissa, and she'd left Melissa almost all of her money while stipulating that Jill would receive only $10. The will further stated that this amount was bequeathed to Jill, quote, intentionally and with full knowledge of the consequences, unquote. 
But Chasen's will had been in effect since the early 90s, and everyone knew about it. Jill herself would say that she had no ill will for her aunt and was very upset at her passing. Then on December 1st, the Los Angeles Times reported that a man believed to be involved in the Chasen murder had committed suicide after he was confronted by police in an apartment building on Santa Monica Boulevard. Harold Martin Smith, age 43, was a down-on-his-luck ex-con who'd spent almost two decades in prison for burglary and robbery convictions. The police reported that a man named Laramie Becke had called in a tip to America's Most Wanted, claiming that his former neighbor, Harold Smith, had been acting suspiciously the morning after the murder. He said that Smith had knocked on his door just two hours after Chasen's murder to ask if police had been by, if he'd seen anything on television about the murder, etc. Becky called in the tip two weeks after the murder. The cops said that they then began looking into Smith and found out about his prior convictions and the fact that he was in dire financial straits. He'd been evicted from his apartment six days after Chasen's murder for non-payment of rent. Smith had been awaiting a $15,000 settlement for a hit-and-run bicycle accident he'd been in, but it had not yet been paid out. He was also having a hard time finding a job. The Beverly Hills police were going on the theory that Smith rode his bicycle, he had no car, into Beverly Hills, and when he saw Ronnie's Mercedes waiting at the light, he approached her passenger side window to rob her. The window on that side of the car had been partially rolled down, according to reports. When she did not comply with his demand, he shot into her window, at which point she attempted to drive away before crashing. It was a simple and tragic robbery gone wrong, they determined. So on December 1st, the police arrived at the Harvey Apartments on Santa Monica Boulevard looking for Smith. Police would later say that they had been surveilling their suspect, but didn't say whether they had happened to see him return to his former residence or if someone had called in a tip. When they attempted to approach him in the lobby of the building to question him, he pulled out a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson and shot himself in the right temple before they could react. But five days later, it was reported that Smith was no longer considered a suspect in the murder. Then another about-face. On December 8th, two days later, the Beverly Hills police came out with a different statement. Chasen's murder, they said, had been a random act of violence, a robbery attempt that went wrong. The gun Harold Smith had used to kill himself was the same gun used in the Ronnie Chasen murder. They believed he had acted alone, and that once facts were verified, they would consider the case closed. However, there were still many questions, and some wondered whether Smith was the killer or involved at all in Ronnie Chasen's murder. The Beverly Hills PD was inundated with questions about their statement of facts. As well, news outlets reported their own skepticism that the investigation had been thorough enough to warrant the case to be closed so quickly. The following July, seven months later, the BHPD issued another statement. Saying they had completed an exhaustive investigation, they believed, quote, without a doubt, it is the conclusion of robbery homicide detectives that the sole perpetrator of this most heinous crime was Harold Martin Smith, unquote. But not everyone was convinced. The Hollywood Reporter conducted their own review of the case documents and found that there was no definitive ballistics match in them, but only an inconclusive report that stated that the, quote, fired bullet jacket could have been fired from Smith's gun as they exhibit similar general rifling characteristics and some agreement of individual characters, 
but are insufficient for identification, unquote. As well, it was noted that there were security cameras positioned in the lobby of the Harvey Apartments, where Smith allegedly shot himself. However, when the videos from that day have been requested by the media or other interested parties, the BHPD has, so far, declined to share them. So was Harold Smith the shooter? And did the murder go down the way the BHPD said it did? To get another opinion, I reached out to longtime celebrity columnist A.J. Benza. A.J. always has the inside scoop on what's happening in Hollywood, whether it be crimes, mysteries, or scandals, and he's very well-versed on this case as well. A.J. shared his thoughts on the Ronnie Chasen murder on his podcast, Fame is a Bitch, and gave me permission to share some of his thoughts with my listeners. Here's a Hollywood insider's view on why Harold Smith is an unlikely suspect. Suspicions rose early on about whether the death was a professional hit, given the fact that nothing was taken out of Chasen's car, and that veteran police officers in the LAPD questioned whether the man named the shooter, a guy named Harold Smith, would pedal a bicycle all the way into Beverly Hills from his East Hollywood apartment complex to commit a robbery without any police officer in the area noticing. Not to mention, Chasen was hit multiple times in a small cluster of bullets near her heart. Ear witnesses say the shots came with perfect timing. Boom, 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 each almost a second apart. Uh, and the shooter left her purse on the seat and either he picked up all uh, five shell casings on the street or had something added to his gun, a, a brass catcher, uh, which which makes the hit nice and tidy. No need for what they call a wet man to go back and clean up. Come on, that, that doesn't sound like a random murder. If you've ever driven the streets of Beverly Hills late at night, you'd see how abandoned they are. Even the side streets off Wilshire are a ghost town after six, especially in the fall and winter. I've rarely heard of even a mugging taking place. So to be gunned down in your car is insane. Anyhow, so this black guy, this supposed perp, he lived in the 5600 block of Santa Monica Boulevard, East Hollywood. And the murder happened in the 800 block of Whittier Drive in Beverly Hills. So you're telling me the suspect pedaled seven miles away to look for somebody to rob. I always felt if he needed money, there are many places closer where he can go to get it. After you pass the Soho House on Sunset, there are no stores, there are no shops, you got the Beverly Hills Hotel, little foot traffic, and the cops are always there outside the bars just waiting for drunk drivers. So a black guy on a bicycle going into Beverly Hills would have been stopped. I'm too dark to drive in Beverly Hills after 7 p.m. As well, T.T. Williams Jr., a retired LAPD homicide detective, told The Hollywood Reporter that he too was not convinced that Harold Smith was the perpetrator. He first questioned the absence of any video footage showing Smith anywhere near the area of the crime. He stated, There had to be some security cameras in that neighborhood that would have caught him. I mean, Beverly Hills? Give me a break. You have a black man supposedly on a bike in the middle of the night. He'd be stopped 15 times. He would have stood out like a sore thumb. Unquote. The belief that a black man in Beverly Hills would be immediately suspected and stopped and questioned by police may be unfair and racist, but it appears to be a commonly held truth by those who are familiar with that community. I bring it up to explain why those who are familiar with the area right away are skeptical that Harold Smith was the shooter. Some also pointed out, if Smith was so desperate for money that he was willing to shoot Chasen for it, why did he then leave her purse, 
a pricey Prada handbag with her wallet and cell phone in plain view on the passenger seat. It would have taken a split second for him to grab it before running off. Nothing was taken. But there were other questions. The investigator said that Chasen's car was stopped at a red light while waiting to turn onto Whittier. But Ryan Katzenbach, a documentary filmmaker, did his own investigation and found that the lights on Sunset Boulevard switch over to sensor mode in the evenings. Because they were on this setting, unless there was cross-traffic, the lights remained green, so there would have been no reason for Chasen to stop. Thus, it would give no opportunity for a robber to approach her car. And if there was cross-traffic, the person or persons in the other car would have, at the very least, seen Chasen's car waiting at the light, and perhaps seen a man on foot in the street. No one reported this. If you recall, it was the same issue of the stoplight sensors that revealed Susan Smith as a liar after she said she'd been carjacked with her kids while waiting at an intersection. She claimed the carjacker had driven away with her children in the car. Investigators on the Smith case determined that the sensors were on and that she could not have been stopped at a red light with no cross-traffic present. If there had been cross-traffic, someone would have witnessed the carjacking, and bingo bango, she was caught in a lie. But I digress. You can hear that entire story on episode 40. Some speculate that Ronnie Chasen was killed in a planned hit. The reasons for the hit have been debated for the past seven years. Was it a jealous rival, an angry client, a loan shark, a shady art dealer, a pissed-off heir, or something else? A.J. Benza has his own theory that perhaps she knew a secret that someone didn't want out in the public. Publicists hold a lot of secrets for their clients, he explains, and some of them can be pretty sordid. I encourage you to listen to his entire episode of Fame is a Bitch on the Ronnie Chasen murder. It's the episode titled Hollywood Burning Part 4, How to Silence a Lamb, from December 1, 2017. After doing my own research into this case, I've come up with my own partial theory about it. I believe Ronnie Chasen was driving down Sunset and someone knew her route and was waiting for her. They knew she would be turning onto Whittier and that there would be no buildings or other vantage points nearby, where what they had planned would be witnessed in that deserted area at that time of night. I believe a car either slowed down in front of her or was positioned in a way that she had to stop her car. Whoever it was didn't cause her too much concern because her passenger window was partially rolled down. Perhaps she stopped because she thought someone was having car trouble and needed her to make a phone call. Or maybe she wasn't alarmed because it was someone she recognized. Maybe it was a police officer who approached her car. That's all pure speculation, I know, but I'm just throwing out possibilities here. She saw the gun come up because her injuries suggest that she'd begun to turn away from the shooter and towards her door in a defensive move or perhaps to try and get out of the car. The bullets hit her in the back and on the top of her shoulder as she turned. Her foot may have instinctively hit the gas or it jammed down on the gas pedal as she was shot. The car then traveled the few yards past the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle and ended up plowing into the light pole on Whittier. What I can't speculate about is why. Maybe AJ's right. Maybe there was a secret someone was afraid she'd reveal. Or maybe it was a rival. I don't know. Or maybe, just maybe, once again, it was the Bermuda Triangle claiming yet another victim. So you have to ask yourself, is the intersection of Sunset Boulevard, Whittier Avenue, and North Linden Avenue cursed? 
Or is that just superstition? But maybe a better question is, the next time you are in Beverly Hills, will you travel through the Bermuda Triangle? Or will you avoid it? That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Thanks again to A.J. Benza for sharing his thoughts on the Ronnie Chasen case with me. You can subscribe to his podcast, Fame is a Bitch, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like it, subscribe, give it a review on iTunes, and by all means, let A.J. know you heard about it here. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. I want to give a special thank you to Haley Gray for helping me with the research for this episode. Until next time, be good to one another and stay out of the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle.